0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign over all. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives.
1: Some of you were probably hoping that today, here in the Detroit metro area, we would be talking about Dan Campbell and his den of lions. And I am sorry that that is the unfortunate case that we're going to be talking about Daniel in the lion's den. Yeah, it's- so, ironic twist for us, but here we are. Have you ever, like this story is, is one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. Uh, how many of you are familiar with it? I'm, I'm sure that probably the majority of us are, right? Yeah, this is the one that you tell your kids, you know, and they lay awake at night thinking they might be thrown in a lion's den themselves if they don't obey the Lord and walk with him, but it's, but it's there, and, and one of the questions I wonder about it is why is this story in the Bible? Why is this one here, this, this story of an older man who is faithful, who doesn't compromise on his convictions when he's trapped by evil, evil forces and so cast into a den of ravenous lions, leaving us to wonder if he'll make it through the night? Why is it here? Now, a couple things about this story. Like if, we consider, if we just lifted it out of the pages of the Bible itself, it wouldn't, it wouldn't dramatically impact the whole of the Scripture and what the Bible tells us, necessarily, Like, there's nothing here that is absolutely doctrinally necessary for us and our salvation. We still have the good news of Christ and His coming for us. I mean, if we don't know about Daniel and his escape from a lion's den, we, we don't really lose anything, do we? I actually think we do. And to answer that question, I think we should see that from... The the angle of the original audience. How did they receive this story? What was happening in their hearts and minds as they read about this faithful man and his deliverance by their faithful God? The the Jews in captivity at that time were in the uh, Babylonian, really the Medo-Persian Empire at that moment, hoping and waiting for the day when they would be uh, released to go back to Jerusalem, back to uh, the city that had been left in ruins by the invading uh, armies They had had felt the the crush underneath them because of their abandonment of God and because of their faithlessness to him. They had felt his disciplining hand upon them. And and yet they wondered, would a day come, would a moment be there when when God delivered them from their own uh, sin, from their own uh, persecution, from their own uh, exile, as it were? Daniel's personal story, and this is the climax of it, is intended to tell his people in their day, but also us in our day, something about who God is and something about how we should trust this God. This book's intended point as a whole is to show the Jewish people, and it's to show us what, what Tremper Longman would say in his commentaries, that in spite of present difficulties, God is in control, and he will have the final victory. That in spite of present difficulties, in spite of the clash of cultures that we are under and in, God is in control and He will have the final victory. Or to say it to us another way, this story commends us to be faithful because God delivers. It's here to build our faith. It's here to encourage us to be faithful in the midst of our lives, in the midst of our walks, to be faithful because God is a God who delivers us. Daniel's life in this ultimate experience, this, uh, this pinnacle experience for him of suffering and persecution, points us to a reality that God can be trusted, that he is faithful And he delivers his people. And because he can be be trusted, we can follow the example of someone like Daniel in our own lives. Now, this is what I would call exemplar literature. We're given an account of a man who is faithful to God, and he reaped the results of that faithfulness. And the point is to inspire our own faithfulness as well. We're meant to see Daniel's life. We're meant to see his faithfulness and go, I need to walk that way. I need to live with that kind of faithfulness towards God as well. So I want us to ask a question this morning. What does a life of faithfulness to God look like? What results come about in a life that is faithful? What what results are produced as we seek to honor God, to to walk the long obedience in the same direction, as we seek to please Him in our lives day by day? Daniel's experience draws out here in this chapter four results of what I'll call Christian faithfulness. The, the, The results of you and I seeking to live to honor Christ to please Him in every facet of our lives, and to be faithful to Him as we trust Him and His goodness. And so I want to show us these four results of Christian faithfulness that are here in Daniel's life himself as well this morning. The first one is this, and that is that Christian faithfulness exposes cultural opposition. By being faithful to Christ, by living a life of faithfulness to Him, the very first thing that we're going to see is that there's going to be an exposure of cultural opposition against us. Now, let me give you a little recap here as we get into this story. At the end of chapter 5, the Babylonian Empire is crushed by the Medo-Persian invasion. They come in, they sack the city, they kill Belshazzar, the king, and Darius the Mede is placed as king over this new kingdom. It's a new government, it's a new organizational system, it's a new way of doing life and a new way of being ruled. And Darius the Mede is the king now, and he sets up this new uh, this new governmental system uh, as it's described to us in verses 1 and 2. He set up 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, and that they all should give a report to the king so that the king should suffer no loss. So it's a hierarchical structure. Uh, These satraps are 120 regional areas, and they're all identified there, and then there's three uh, chief officials that are placed over those 120. So perhaps... Each high official got 40 of those satraps each, and just as a hierarchical pyramid system was the way that the new government was going to be organized. The purpose of this organization was so that, as it says there in verse 2, the king might suffer no loss. That that means that there would be no loss in taxation, that the money would keep flowing, there would be uh, peace and order, there would be a well-ruled, well-governed system of life. Uh, Just in the transition from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians, you'd think there'd be like this chaos that would just go on culturally and anarchy everywhere. No, not at all. They wanted a highly efficient, highly organized, highly mainstreamed system of government so that there would be no loss at all. You, You wouldn't even blink and know that something had changed. Now Daniel, he's in the midst of this. He had been promoted by the Babylonian Empire at the end of chapter 5 to be the third in the government. And it seems like Darius was like, hey, that's a good guy, and he's in a good position, so I'm just going to give him some more influence and leadership here. And he sets Daniel to be third, one of these three high officials over, uh, over these 120 uh, satraps, these 120 regions. Now Daniel does great. Verse 3. This Daniel became distinguished among all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He's just leading well. He's ruling efficiently. There's not any loss. He's just head and shoulders above everybody else in the government. And so the king kind of determines, I'm going to make a new structure. Instead of me, and then three, and then 120, I'm going to go me, and then Daniel, and then we'll just figure it out from there on out. We'll just keep the 120, and they'll just roll with it. But Daniel's going to get promoted. You can imagine how those other guys might feel about Daniel's promotion and their own relegation. Like, they're going to lose here. And they all want power, right? This is a government system. So everybody is climbing for power. Everybody's grasping for it. And the way it works in government and politics is to climb the ladder, you've got to step on and step over other people. You just put them underfoot and you elevate yourself and they go down. And So Daniel here is getting promoted, but these guys are getting pushed down and, and they are not going to have anything to do with that. So they say, they, they look, verse 4 tells us, to find ground for complaint against Daniel. Like they, they want to find the flaw. They want to find the error. Maybe he's skimming money off the top. Maybe he's, maybe he's in good with the king. And maybe he's just a man of low integrity. And we're going to find that flaw that means we're going to be able to, to expose him and ruin his character. But they couldn't. It wasn't there. Right? Verse 4 tells us they were unable to do that. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault. Why? Because Daniel was faithful. No error or fault was found within him. Here's a faithful man, working hard, doing the right thing at the right time for the right people, a man of high integrity, an impeccable character. He's what the scriptures might call later, a man above reproach. He's He's just exemplary in every way. So what do you do when you have a man of high character leading and you want to take him down? You make a trap. You set up a way for him to fall. They determined that the only way that they could get him is pitting his religion, his faith in the Lord God, his way of life under the law of God with the laws of the land. He's going to have to choose. It's either going to be God or king because you can't serve both. So verses 6 through 9, as I read, lay, they lay out the trap. Now these guys, they appeal to the pride and arrogance of, of this king, King Darius. Uh, I love how it reads. They, they, they come in by agreement together. Like maybe they have a little committee and they're all like, you know what? We've got to get this guy Daniel to fail. And so we'll, let's, let's just all go to the king and let's see if he can make a rule together. Let's see if he can make a law. So they, they come to the king and like, hey, king, we were talking. We were all by the water cooler today. And we think we should make, we really think you should make a law. And it should be a great law in your favor. You see, people in the kingdom, they're praying to their gods, and it's like this god, that god, everybody's got their own gods. And you want to have a really streamlined, efficient, you know, managed kingdom. So you should make a law that nobody prays to any other god or petitions to any other person except for you over the next 30 days. We'll just take a month of people coming right to you, through you. Like if anybody's going to have access to the gods, they've got to go through you to get there. Now Babylonian and Medo-Persian kings did not view themselves as God. This isn't Darius thinking, well, hey, I'll be God and everybody can come and worship me. They viewed themselves as mediators or conduits to the will of the gods. So if a person went through a different mediator, they weren't loyal to the king himself. They set up a trap of loyalty to the king. If Daniel goes and prays to his God, that means he's not for Darius. And whatever Darius is doing, and again, it's Daniel's God versus the king. Which one's gonna be? So they seek this law out and, and they even play on the, the nature of Medo-Persian law. They they say, here's the law. If they don't follow that, they shall be cast into a den of lions. And they say to the king, Oh king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed. Like put this law in stone so that it cannot be altered at all according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. If it's on the tablet, you got to be doing it. That's the way it is. And the king, he signs it. Verse 9, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. He's tripped. He's fooled. Of course King Darius loves the law. It makes him the most important person in the kingdom. Everybody's got to go through and work through him. Everybody's got to be loyal to him. Now, let me just point out this trap here that they've set and what it means for us in Christian faithfulness. Because of our Christian faith and our Christian convictions, and mainly, most importantly, our lives of integrity, the hostile culture we live in will seek to draw out and oppose our faith. And this shouldn't surprise us. Friends, it's a lie to think that if you are a faithful Christian, everything will be awesome, Every day will be a Friday, and you'll have nothing but an upward trajectory of health, wealth, and blessing in this life. Now, yes, Daniel is promoted, but he's also the object of opposition. There's there's persecution and opposition headed his way. And we can count on that. Whenever there is faithfulness to Christ, we should expect there to be opposition from the world against Christ and his people. We should count on it. Jesus told us this. He told his disciples in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has, it has hated me before it hated you. Like, the world will hate you on account of me. Or Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Like, so many of us today, when we feel or sense opposition because of our faith, in Christ, in this world, we're, we're freaked out. We're surprised. We're like, how did that happen? I thought it was daisies and roses and everything was going to be great and awesome forever. And these people don't like me. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Or Paul told Timothy, catch the scope of this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that, that encompasses every believer, every person who, who desires to live a life godly in Christ Jesus, catch this, will be be persecuted that not, not might be you know, not the odd chance that it could happen definitive will be for everyone who seeks to be faithful to Jesus Christ Christian faithfulness exposes the opposition of our culture the, the, the forces of darkness the kingdoms of this world and of Satan they hate Christ and they hate his people so faithfulness to Christ in our daily lives means being a people of outstanding integrity, being above reproach, and expecting to draw out opposition and derision. It will come. But here's the point, friends. No matter what, be faithful. Be faithful because God delivers. I was reading recently about a man named Casper Tenboom. He was a Dutch watchmaker in the early 20th century. And as a Christian, he opposed the anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany and the persecution of the Jewish people. He provided shelter in his own home and aid to Jews that were being hunted down in in Europe at that time. To, To show his solidarity with the Jewish people that were being persecuted and killed, he even wore a Star of David himself, although he was not Jewish. So in 1944, the Gestapo raided his house. They arrested Casper and everyone in the home, including his grandchildren who were there. He was detained in prison for nine days before he was sent to a hospital where he died of complications from his harsh treatment. Casper's Christian belief encouraged him to care for and protect all life. And it brought out the opposition that took his life. Friends, that's what Christian faithfulness will result in. It will expose cultural opposition. Don't be surprised. Be faithful. God delivers. That's the first result. The cultural, or Christian faithfulness exposes cultural opposition. But there's another result here in this text. It's, it's that Christian faithfulness cultivates uncompromising character. Now, let's just zoom in here on Daniel for just a moment. He's the one in the crucible. He's the one being tested at this moment. He knows this law is being signed. And In fact, verse 10 says, When Daniel knew the document had been signed... What's he do? Does he, does he go down to the basement, hide out? Does he, does he try and you know, shift his allegiance in some way or another? Does he f- try and find a short circuit around how he's lived his life? No, no. I, one of the remarkable things about Daniel's attitude in this whole story is that he has this, this sense of tranquility and calm. Like he's not disturbed in any way. He is truly a non-anxious presence. When he's informed of the decree, he's not flustered one bit what does he do? He goes on with his regular, consistent, daily habit of prayer. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I mean, Daniel just keeps doing the faithful thing that he had always been doing. He doesn't alter it. He doesn't make a show of it any more than he already had. He just, this is the thing he had done day after day after day. Three times a day, gone home, windows open towards Jerusalem, and he just prays. And he gives thanks to God. And he, and he bows before the Lord. It's just his regular habit of life. And it's a consistent habit of integrity. It's a, it's a man who just lives with uncompromising character. Now, he knows this new law is here, but he knows the greater and higher law of God, the Ten Commandments. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment says, you shall not worship any created, any graven images, anything man-made or created by God. You shouldn't worship that. So Daniel does have a choice to make, follow the laws of the land or follow the laws of God. He has clarity on it, and he obeys God first. He keeps doing what he's always been doing. Faithful, consistent obedience to the Lord. We might ask, well, what could keep Daniel at peace? Why is he so, uh, so tranquil? Why is he so at peace in the midst of this great trial? How could Daniel not break when it came to this law? I mean, let's just let, put yourself in his shoes. That kind of law is made in our country. Like You only worship, you only go to one person in prayer. Like You don't worship your God. That's it. How, how do you go about that? Daniel had built this habit and practice of prayer in his life. Notice, it said as he had done previously. It was just consistency in his life. He prayed when it was non-threatening to him. And so that kept him praying when it was threatening to him. Daniel's at this point in the story, he's 80 years at least old in his life. And he's had this long obedience in the same direction. The life of prayer that's here was forged back when he was a younger man. And he said, I will not defile myself with the king's meat. He he decided in his heart. It was a pattern of day after day after day, choosing to be a man of integrity. He chose the law that is more permanent than the law of the Medes and the Persians. He chose the law and the love of God. How did that happen again? Day by day, moment by moment, decisions to be faithful to the Lord. A couple years ago, I caught a documentary called Hero Dreams of Sushi. It's about this master sashimi chef in Tokyo and his famous restaurant. And, and it, the documentary followed this uh, man in his 80s as well as he reflected on his life and his pursuit of being a sushi master. And his work ethic really boiled down to this. How did he get there? His restaurant had like waiting list of, of six or seven months at a time. Probably the most famous chef in sushi in the world. His work ethic boiled down to one statement that he made. I do the same thing over and over, improving bit by bit. That's his life of, of direct, faithful, steady character. A dogged persistence to honor God. This is Daniel. To honor God in the same thing, at the same time, every day, attempting to do it a little better than he did the day before. So think about your own life and your own faith. How will you know you won't bend or compromise If your faith one day is outlawed, it would only come through the practice of faithfulness to Christ in the here and now when it isn't illegal. So, friends, are are there habits built into your life that you're developing uncompromising character in? Are you building the habit of being in the Word of God daily and reading His Word? Are are you in the habit of prayer, of, of bowing before God and giving thanks before Him? And it's just a known habit of your life? I mean, I think Daniel has got a great practice for us here. Three times a day, let's just stop and pray and give thanks to God. Bow our faces to Him. Maybe a habit you need to build into your life is weekly attending the, word of, uh, the worship services, the wor- being part of the church family, the Word of God together. Maybe you need to build a habit of confessing sin and, and building relational accountability with one or two more uh, mature believers, Of just regularly sitting down with them and working through your heart and life to be encouraged to build this uncompromising character. Christian faithfulness is doing the next obvious thing for the glory of God. And it's a life of consistency that will cultivate uncompromising character when the pressure comes. So number one, One of these results is that Christian faithfulness exposes cultural opposition. Number two is that Christian faithfulness cultivates uncompromising character. But a third result is here, and this is the one that we've all been waiting for. Like, what happens to Daniel? Where does this go from him? And this is really the highlight or the crux of the story. Daniel goes, and he prays as he had been, and sure enough, he springs the trap. The guys had been waiting for him. I think they all just got around and said, hey, okay, Tuesday at noon. Let's just go sit outside his house and see what happens. And they're there, and they look up in the window, and they're like, yeah, like clockwork, sure enough. All right, boys, let's go get him. And they grab Daniel. They take him to the king. Actually, they, they come to the king, and they're like, hey, king, didn't you sign a law? We're just we're a little fuzzy on this, but kind of feels like you signed an injunction, a law, verse 12, that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, into the lion's den, they go, Did, didn't you do that, king? Right? <laughs> King's like, absolutely. Notice here, he says, it stands fast. Like, this law can't be broken. It's a sure thing. It's absolutely there. And that's, that's where they just bring it out. And they're like, oh, well, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, he pays you no attention, O king. He doesn't even think about the laws you've, you've written or signed. But he makes his petition three times a day. Like, he's tripling down on offending you and going to his God. He's not loyal to you. He's a rebel worthy of death. Now, Darius knows better. He knows the character of Daniel. He knows the heart of Daniel. And he's distressed. Verse 14, when he heard these words, he was much distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Now, think about this. The king here, the king of the entire empire, he knows the laws of the land. And he tries to act like a lawyer to figure out a way for Daniel to get out of this all day long. And he's the king. Like, there's nobody else who has more power or more authority than him in the entire empire. He is so held by the codes and conditions of his day and time, by the culture of his time, that he cannot even see that he has the power to deliver Daniel. He won't, he won't break his own laws. Daniel must go to the lion's den. Sure enough, Darius commands it, verse 16, Daniel to the lion's den. And, he, and he, Darius throws out Daniel a little line. He's like, well, good luck. May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. He's like, I hope to see you in the morning, but I'm not counting on it. Like, oh, we hope it's there. A stone was brought, laid over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it, brought their wax and the signets from their rings and sealed it off so that it wouldn't be disturbed. Or if it was disturbed, they knew somebody would break in to deliver Daniel. And the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought And notice his sleep fled from him. Here's a transition or a a, a contrast here, right? There's Daniel who's about to get thrown into the lion's den and he's pretty chill about it. And there's the king who has the authority and power to release Daniel and he's all messed up over it. He's the one who's anxious and disturbed. And We're meant to live in the tension of this story and go, what happens? We're seeing it through the lens of the king Daniel's in that pit, those hungry, ravenous lions ready to tear him bone by bone, flesh by flesh away, but we don't know what happens. In verse 19, the day, at the break of day, the king arose and he went in haste. He was sprinting to the den, running as fast as he could, and as he gets near to the den, he's, he's just Angered, agonizing over it. He's crying out like this. Uh, he expects the worst. He thinks Daniel's gone and dead. The king declares, he yells out, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to save you and deliver you from the lions? That is the understatement of the century here. Absolutely. But Darius doesn't know it. We don't know it. And then verse 21, Daniel said to the king, like we hear words, he's alive, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel is saved. He's delivered by the might and power of God. God is able to close the mouths of the lions. And Daniel knows that. He attributes it to this God who he was found blameless before. He had been faithful to. He had lived with a righteous integrity. He was delivered. The point here is that Daniel was faithful to the Lord. And the Lord protects and delivers his people. Now, I think it's a little tricky, at least it should be for us at this point, to put ourselves in Daniel's shoes here, right? I'm doubtful that any one of us will be thrown into a den of hungry lions as a result of our dependence and fidelity to the Lord. Yet, this points to a greater deliverance we need. The point of this story isn't to pretend that we are Daniel, the hero, and that God will deliver us from the perceived lions of our lives. The point of the story is to point us to a God who delivers his people from their greatest foe. We have to see it in this way. Unlike Daniel, who was righteous before the king and therefore did not deserve this penalty, we are unrighteous before the king. We have violated the laws of God. We're nowhere near close to faithfulness in our lives. And yet a truer and greater Daniel came on our behalf. Each one, think of it this way. Each one of us has rebelled against our Creator and our King, and the penalty for our rebellion is death. We're truly the people who have paid the King no attention, as Daniel was accused of. We deserve death. And yet, even though we deserve death, God set a substitute on our behalf. That substitute is Jesus, the Son of God. He faced the lion of God's wrath and judgment in our place. Amos 1.2 speaks of the Lord's wrath as the Lord roaring from Zion. Jesus took the wrath of the lion of God on the cross for our sin. And just like Daniel, Jesus was sealed in a tomb by the governing authorities, expecting him never to come out again. And yet on the third day, because he is faithful, because he is righteous. God shut the mouth of death, and Jesus Christ emerged from that tomb, resurrected by the God who delivers. Friends, let me ask you this, as Tim Keller would say, do you believe in the ultimate Daniel, Jesus Christ, who went into the ultimate lion's den for you? Do you believe Jesus That he went and took your punishment so that now you are really faithful? You are perceived and seen as faithful in God's sight? That's the good news, friends. We can be faithful because God delivers. He's delivered us from our greatest enemy, from the death we absolutely deserve, by his son dying in our place. We can be faithful because God, through Jesus Christ, has delivered us from his justice and sin by the death of Christ on the cross. And that's the good news, that God delivers everyone who trusts in Him. Have you trusted Him? Is your life banked on His work on your behalf? That's where the life of faithfulness can flow from. Christian faithfulness reveals divine deliverance. And one final result, Christian faithfulness sparks a spiritual awakening. What happens with King Darius here is amazing. He has seen the power of Daniel's God, the God who delivers and rescues, and he is stunned by that. Look with me at verse 25. King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, which by the way, that includes us today. He writes this ahistorical letter and says, here's something I want all of you to figure out and to think of. It's here for our listening right now. And he says, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This this foreign king, this pagan king, comes to life, as it were, about who God is, who Daniel's God is, enough to say to everybody, you've got to look at and see and worship and bow down and tremble before this God. God. Because he alone is the living God. He alone is the God who delivers and rescues. He did it in Daniel's life, friends, and he could do it in yours. Daniel's faithfulness sparked a spiritual awakening in Darius' life and in the kingdom and to the ends of the earth today. His decree is for all people to bow down and to worship and to tremble before the living God. Daniel's faithfulness is a testimony of God's grace and power that sparks a spiritual awakening. Think about your own life. Our faithfulness could be a testimony to a watching world that spotlights the power and compassion of God. I think about my dad in this. My dad practiced this kind of faithful presence when he was working for a computer software company in the late 80s and 90s. It was a heady time at that company, lots of money, lots of opportunity, lots of growth. And the culture around that company was, was an excessive company with parties and drinking and wild lifestyles. My dad was a follower of Jesus, though, and he committed himself to living a distinctive life to be a faithful Christian in the marketplace, in the workplace. And that put him at the butt of jokes about his faith and his integrity. He was excluded in places and ostracized and put down. But it was at least on one occasion that I can think of when a co-worker in my dad's company, a co-worker that was underneath my dad as a manager, his life was crumbling all around him, including his marriage. He, he came and asked my dad, why are you so at peace? I mean, you're You're mocked around here, and yet your life is filled with peace and security. What's, What's the difference? My dad was able to declare to him, the only peace I have is because of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. This man observed my dad's faithful Christian presence in his workplace, and as a result, that man and his whole family became followers of Jesus themselves. Friends, we have to remember that there is an ongoing world watching us. They're looking to see if we are any different than they are. They're looking to see our consistency, our faithfulness, and our integrity before the Lord. Do what we proclaim as Christians really match how we live? Yes, some will be repulsed by us. Some will oppose us. But some, friends, will see the light and they'll be drawn to Christ. And in that way, we will be salt and light, as Jesus declared, in this world. That means we we have to be around these non-Christians in our lives. We have to know them, share our lives with them. We've got to make space for them in our lives. We've got to be faithful in the way we work and live in our neighborhoods, and our jobs. We must be a people of consistent integrity and character. Faithfulness to the Lord, Christian faithfulness can spark a spiritual awakening. So let me ask you, friends, are are these results worth chasing? Is is a life of character and faithfulness to the Lord, even though it will bring about opposition and even though it will develop character and reveal divine deliverance and spark awakening, is that worth having? I believe it is. It is because Jesus Christ has already gone before us already. We can live in and remember to be faithful day by day by day because we have a greater God who delivers from all our enemies, from all fear, from all oppression. Be faithful. God delivers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in this story we see what Christ has accomplished for us. In this we see your great love and compassion how you care for your children. Lord, we seek to be faithful to you. I pray that today we would begin making the clear, obvious decisions of our lives that are decisions of integrity, steps of honoring and being faithful to you. And we pray, Father, that we would see this last result more than anything. As we seek to be salt and light in this world, that you would use us to spread and to see a great spiritual awakening in our day and in our time. Lord, use us to that end for your glory. We thank you for your word and for your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you to stand as I will send us now with a blessing and a benediction. May the God of grace who has given himself for us who stands as king for his people.
0: Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org to introduce yourself today.